Okay. Uh, okay. Okay. Good. Good morning. Good morning. A very warm welcome uh, this morning to our event on the world's response to China's Belt and Road Initiative. Um, it's my a very uh, big pleasure to see so many people of uh, this morning, uh, making it so early to uh, to our offices. So, so I suppose it's it's the topic and the speakers um, that uh, that drive the interest. Thank you all for coming. Uh, so we have the pleasure of uh, today actually um, uh, presenting two studies that we have recently published here at Bruegel. Um, one study is by um, Bruegel senior fellow Uri Dadush. Um, who uh, will present uh, first um, his study, which is an overview study of the Belt and Road Initiative as it turns five years old. And uh, the second presentation is by our senior fellow, Alicia Garcia Herrero, um, who wrote a nice paper that I think we published yesterday, uh, only yesterday, on perceptions um, of the Belt and Road Initiative uh, through media analysis. Uh, so, uh, so, so following those two presentations, we will have a panel discussion where I'm delighted to welcome uh, George Cunningham, a strategic advisor on Asia-Pacific Affairs at the European External Action Service, as well as Jean-Francois Dimelio, uh, who is uh, president of the Asia Center in Paris. Um, the uh, whole event is on the record um, and is being live streamed um, and um, we will have time for Q&A, but if you ask a question, I would ask, to ask you to identify yourself when you ask the question in the end. But let's start um, with uh, the presentation by Uri. Uri. <coughs> yes, good morning everybody. Thank you very much, Guntram. Um, this paper is joined with Michael Bantersberger. Is he here? Is yes, Michael here? Yes. Are they? Okay, good to see you. <laughs> I just came in from Paris. So, um, uh, so the main message that I wanted to give is that uh, uh, the BRI Belt and Road Initiative is a legitimate attempt by China uh, to improve its uh, trade and to build friendships. Uh, and the BRI fills an important gap in the market for infrastructure, especially in developing countries. However, the execution of the BRI is faulty, and there are a number of adjustments uh, that are required for it to succeed. All right, that's my main, the main message that uh, we're giving in this, uh, in this paper. Uh, so let me unpack uh, that message that central message. First of all, uh, we need to understand that the BRI is uh, just one aspect of a global trend where uh, large economies and even small economies are building bridges. Uh, so of course the European Union, arguably the most ambitious effort in this direction began six countries, now it's 28 countries. It has uh, uh, dozens of economic partnership agreements that include aid, uh, include uh, uh, trade, uh, and include all sorts of conditions associated with that. Uh, the United States has been uh, also very active with a more focused program on international trade. So for example, if you look at uh, the immediate neighborhood of the United States, it has trade agreements with Canada, with Mexico, 
and it has trade agreements with most Latin American countries, with the notable exception of Brazil and Argentina. So no surprise that China, as it emerged or opened up just 40 years ago, has had an extremely active uh, program of reaching out in all sorts of, uh, of ways. It has a fair number of trade agreements, uh, and it has uh, uh, become part of the WTO, uh, is an active member of the World Bank, IMF, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but the BRI is the newborn. It's five years old and uh, uh, in many ways could prove to be the most ambitious aspect of uh, uh, China's uh, outreach. The BRI is similar in its overall objectives to what the European Union and what the United States are trying to do with their various international agreements but it has some important distinguishing characteristic, characteristics. It is focused mainly on infrastructure, although international trade is sort of, certainly part of it because a lot of the infrastructure is about improving connectivity between China and the rest, and the rest of the world. Um, it has an important development component because it's trying to link up its western regions which are underdeveloped with the uh, particularly with uh, uh, Central Asia, the rest of the world. Another distinguished characteristic is that a key role in the BRI is played by state-owned enterprises, which of course play a much smaller role in, uh, or almost no role, uh, in the uh, United States and a little bit more, but not much, uh, in the European Union in its outreach program. And uh, uh, the other distinguished, important distinguished characteristic is that the BRI has few strings attached. I'll be explicit there. It's essentially stated as a business proposition. What we're trying to do is we're trying to build better connections with you, but so stated it is not intended to interfere in any way in domestic affairs it is not intended to create a strategic alliance. Uh, this is an explicit uh, statement on the part of the Chinese, which of course is not believed in a number of places, but that is the stated objective. And uh, this distinguishing characteristics is actually very important because it's in some way it is a strength of the BRI, I'll explain in a moment, but it's also a major weakness of the BRI. Again, I'll explain in a moment. Um, then the next point is a, a very important one, is that BRI fills an important gap in the market. So every analysis that has been done of uh, uh, the developing world points to a huge gap in infrastructure, okay? And you ask, well, why is the market for infrastructure not functioning? And uh, uh, we try in our paper to explain why this infrastructure has not been happening. Uh, in part because the private firms uh, from the European Union, from the United States, from many other places, do not want to engage in a 30-year project in a weak governance environment with enormous uncertainties uh, 
connected to it, including credit uncertainties, by the way, and credit constraints. And number two, on the other hand, the public investment effort, which is done through the multilateral development banks uh, primarily, and uh, through, through some of the bilateral agencies, is just not big enough. It's, it's simply far too small relative to uh, the needs, number one, and number two, the multilateral development lending effort and the bilateral development lending effort has been hobbled by all sorts of uh, safeguards and conditions, many of which we would agree with relating to the environment, indigenous communities, uh, 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 governance safeguards, et cetera, et cetera, all of which are needed uh, to some degree, but when you took the totality of this together, combined with the fact that there are limited uh, multilateral resources relative to the needs, uh, in effect, the uh, international development effort in the direction of infrastructure has been simply insufficient, okay? Um, so China comes in and fills the gap in the market because they have the resources, it's done mainly by state-owned enterprises. These state-owned enterprises have a long experience, huge infrastructure projects within China, are willing to take a long-term view, are able to take a long-term view, and they're not putting in conditions regarding you know, anything from uh, uh, long-term financial viability to the government, of the government to uh, not to mention governance, democracy, human rights, uh, environment, et cetera, et cetera. Okay. Obviously, and this is my uh, next point, there are many challenges associated with this uh, uh, initiative. Uh, in many ways, potentially valuable as this initiative is from an international development perspective, there are many challenges uh, which are discussed in the paper. Of course, I don't have time to go into each of these. Uh, but let me just mention them quickly and highlight a couple. There is, of course, the geopolitical uh, challenge. Is China really uh, wanting to develop and build infrastructure, or is it really uh, just uh, projecting its power in a way that could be nefarious for the rest of us in the long term? We don't actually take a position on that issue. We, we uh, highlight the different views. Uh, uh, but we say it's important, we don't know, or it's not we don't know, we don't want to take a position on this, uh, but it's important to uh, evaluate the BRI on its merits as a development initiative. And in this regard, it has a number of weaknesses. It has, its objectives are not sufficiently clear, its priorities, are not well-defined from the point of view of a trade development initiative. The geographic scope has exploded from being the old Silk Road to being about 100 countries around the world. It's essentially become the sort of touchstone for Chinese foreign policy uh, in all sorts of regards, which makes it very difficult to understand what the, what the priorities are and uh, where uh, this initiative is, uh, is going. Uh, there is, uh, uh, of course, issues associated with the SOEs, uh, 
the same issues that are very much at the forefront of the trade agenda at the moment, uh, subsidization, unfair practices, uh, lack of transparency, uh, et cetera, et cetera, which again are uh, discussed, are discussed in the paper. There's the issue of allocation of resources. Does this really make sense from the point of view of China, which has very poor regions to its west to spend so much money and take so much risk uh, developing infrastructure overseas when it has so much to do at home? And perhaps the most important and the one I want to highlight is the due diligence issue. Now, due diligence is a big, uh, big catch-all, but it effectively means, uh, in my view, two things. Number one, is this project going to be uh, uh, viable? Does it make economic sense at the end of the day from the point of view of the borrower? But of course, that's also important from the point of view of the lender, whether the project is going to work uh, will determine whether the lender gets paid back and whether the borrower actually you know, uh, has a positive cost benefit, benefit cost analysis. And there isn't sufficient due diligence, there isn't sufficient uh, coordination. So in conclusion, there is a lot to do uh, to make the BRI, which is potentially a very valuable uh, thing, uh, to make it work better. Um, it, uh, uh, it needs better articulated priorities. It needs more due diligence. It needs more transparency. Uh, quite a bit of that can be improved by increasing the collaboration with the multilateral development banks and other bilateral agencies that have uh, state-of-the-art practices in this thing. But I, for one, would not want this to become a multilateral initiative. I like the fact, personally, that it is a, an initiative that is funded by China, which is putting large resources behind it and it is able to execute quickly on a lot of projects uh, that are very badly needed. But it would be good if in addition to the speed and the ability to execute and the ability to marshal resources, we could have uh, better due diligence. Of course, the issue is not just a Chinese issue. The countries that receive these funds should be much more careful in the way that they do their due diligence. In the end, this is their money and the money that they have to repay. So countries, developing countries in particular, but not only, need a good strategic plan that identifies their infrastructure priorities and are not actually necessarily the Chinese priorities. And finally, how should the EU and the United States respond? Well, our view is that the United States and the EU should take a constructive view of the Belt and Road Initiative, a constructive but critical view. Critical because of all the, mentions, all the things I mentioned. Constructive, very simply because this is actually consistent with what the Chinese are doing, is consistent with the development efforts of the uh, great powers, okay? We want Africa to have better infrastructure. That will help us Europeans. And we want Latin America to have better infrastructure. That will help us Americans. Thank you. 
Well, thank you very much, uh, Uri. That uh, was, uh, I think, a very, very interesting uh, opening. And if you are interested in the paper, of course, the paper is available on our website. Uh, I think it was very interesting to hear from you um, the development uh, perspective on this uh, and the need um, and the need to uh, uh, the need for infrastructure investment. But I think you were also fair in highlighting a number of, of challenges, in particular in as regards due diligence. Uh, and the need for recipient countries actually to uh, to uh, exercise greater greater due diligence. I mean, of course, media reports are full of countries that um, have not done uh, due diligence for whatever reasons. Um, uh, that may be part of the construction problem of the the Bed and Road Initiative, um, uh, and have indebted themselves way too much, uh, uh, putting themselves in in pretty significant dependencies. The one thing you didn't mention, which I thought uh, we is also in the paper, um, is of course environmental and climate uh, climate issues. Um, the uh, uh, investments that are being done in the context of the Belt and Road Initiative are major and are not always investments in environmentally and climate friendly infrastructure. Now, one can debate whether that is needed or not, but uh, if we w want to fulfill the climate goals, for sure. Um, this is this is one of the big concerns um, because these kind of infrastructures stay there for uh, actually a very long time and and will influence climate policies for for a very long time. Now there's a lot of issues that you touched on and that we can discuss also afterwards in the panel, including the point you made on multilateral versus bilateral. I think that is perhaps a topic we want to discuss in the panel. But but before uh, before we go to that, um, uh, let me turn to Alicia to present her paper. Um, Think you have a PowerPoint? Um, uh, to, if you could put up the PowerPoint, uh, and this paper was was published just just yesterday. Thank you. Yes. Uh, thank you very much for your time. I'll try to very be very brief because for the benefit of the panel, I'm going to. Uh, present a paper we just published on on uh, the image of the Belt and Road. Um, before I do that, uh, let me say that you know, of course, uh, one, when one looks at the project um, in positive terms, I what and we wrote a paper on the trade benefits uh, a while ago. Of course, it you know, it just simply makes sense if somebody pays for somebody else's um, infrastructure. And that infrastructure is basically uh, focused on connectivity across countries. Anybody can benefit. I mean, that's the principle. So if, if that is indeed the case, uh, the key question which we want to highlight in this paper is why is the image deteriorating, especially among members which are members of the Belt and Road Initiative, if they are benefiting so much. So this is the irony of the thing, yeah, that, and, and perhaps part of it is because of the drawbacks that uh, in the design, uh, which you didn't mention, but I would add is really a hub-and-spoke approach. This is not a multilateral uh, development strategy. And I think part of that is many, many of the things you mentioned could be actually summarized in, in, by the fact that this is really a hub-and-spoke um, strategy from China to every single country, literally, as you said, in the world. Um, so, um, okay, so I'm going to be very quick. There's lots of stuff there, but let me tell you what um, I'll be presenting here. We had a presentation in Paris. I'll, I'll try to be much briefer. I don't have time. 
perhaps uh, very clearly, um, and there's lots of slides I'll show about many regions in the world, I'll focus on Europe here. I just, what we try to do here with uh, my co-author also, um, non-resident fellow from Bruegel's, uh, Jiang Wei Shu, um, we try to measure the image of the Belt and Road among people. It's not about how much government may like the Belt and Road, it's about how much the population in general, and because we don't have surveys, we use big data, media, uh, basically press and video and radio, not uh, social media, to capture that image. That's what we do. And, and um, the question is, how good is it? And uh, most importantly, perhaps we can't really measure how good, but we can measure how different among countries and, and try to figure out why is it so different. Beyond the paper that you can have, uh, find on our web, I have tried, um, to the best of my ability, I'm sure that uh, political scientists can do better than me, uh, to focus on two, and one will be probably covered um, uh, surely by Mr. Cunningham, uh, Europe's response, which is mo mostly infra-related. Yeah? And also, of course, the US and India, which they basically, and Japan and Australia, but I guess uh, the US is the elephant in the room, responds to this strategy, the Indo-Pacific strategy. So that these are, this is the last thing I will do. So I will rush, as I said. Of course, this is, we can't even know how many countries, except that there is an official web, which, by the way, we, we've already run well behind, because we have Panama and Uruguay, which are not in our definition of Belt and Road Initiative when we started the project, because they were not yet in, and they became members only in November. So you see, it's, it's just a Portugal. So, so our, uh, our definition of BRI is already outdated, even if we did this only a few months ago. And on top of that, there are countries that we don't even know how to classify, broad BRI, we call them, such as India, because they are in the official list, but they don't want to be. So, and this is, by the way, very different from Europe. If a country doesn't want to be, and isn't yet, I must say, I must add that point, won't be considered a EU state member. And what I'm trying to say is that the level of shallowness, if I may say, of basically legal framework or, you know, is massive. This is an MOU. I've actually seen, I, I must say I've seen one that was sent to my home country. It, it's just a piece of paper. So being in that, in that list is not very difficult. Put it this way, it's not even easy to get out because there's no legal framework for you to be either in or out. And this in itself is a big difference from anything we know in development or in a, or any kind of partnership among countries. So rushing, but I wanted to make that point because I think we don't realize how, you know, how informal the whole thing is, if I may say that word. It becomes formal once you borrow. That, that's when the formality comes. That's for sure not uh, just a piece of paper. So how do we measure? We want to see how well the project is received among countries' people, but we also want to know why it is received positively or negatively? What is the main factor behind? And, uh, yes, um, so uh, I will skip, uh, for those who are very interested in big data, you can just read the paper, see how we do it. By the way, I add, uh, you know, if, if there is researchers here, this is a wonderful, wonderful data set, GDELT, it's very easy to use, and you can basically 
do anything you like, look at the image of anything you like in, in this data, uh, data set. So I encourage you to know more, and I'm not going to get into the detail now um, of how we did this. Uh, I hope you rely on, on the paper for this and how we uh, calculated the sentiment. So what do we find? This is uh, the first thing I want to show you. So these points there are the average, the the numerical summary of the image of the Belt and Road in whatever country you find it. So for example, Maldives, not a surprise, is very negative. <laughs> Whoever knows what has been happening in the Maldives would understand that, well, this makes sense. Uh, Bosnia is very negative. Poland is very negative. And that starts to be quite astounding because these are members of the 16 plus one. So how come, you know? And I have received actually comments presenting this paper by a Polish uh, person in the, that this could not possibly be true. Maybe, but this is what we find. So apparently the media in Poland is negative about this project. And I could even tell you why, because this big data set allows us to extract the most frequently mentioned issue. So, and I will show you a little bit of that. So. Some countries, the Netherlands, for example, is very positive. Bosnia is very negative, Poland is very negative in Europe. And these are basically, I'm going to rush here, the averages per country, so you can find uh, per region, per country. So any country you want to know about, uh, there you go, you, you, can, you can have it. So I'm, I'm going to focus now on, on uh, Europe. Um, uh, so Europe, Basically, the color shows whether you are part of the Belt and Road or not. So the idea being not because you are, you feel more comfortable with this uh, development strategy. By the way, some countries in the strategy are already developed. <laughs> New Zealand doesn't need a development strategy that I'm aware of. So why is it part of the Belt and Road Initiative? So, so I'm just saying, is development the objective, perhaps? Because if it isn't, we, maybe it's hard to look at it from that perspective. It might be for some, I fully agree. Uh, Russia, I'm not sure it's a developing country, it's the largest recipient of funds, by all means, 70 billion, followed by a non-BRI member, so it's hard to put it in, Venezuela, 60, Pakistan, 40 plus. So it's a very strange grouping if you even look at uh, how much they, you know, money they have received. So bear with me. I'm going to move very fast here. I just, you get a sense basically of how different these countries are. And now I'm going to move to what determines this difference. By the way, and this, of course, uh, I've received this comment. You always forget to say, Alicia, that the average is positive. I mean, the average image. Yes, it is true. I should not forget saying that. But of course, I have no benchmark. Positive compared to what? Marshall Plan, the World Bank. I mean, I'm not focusing, not that I want to discredit China on its efforts, by all means. It's positive. Great. But I don't know how positive it should be. Because if given it's, yeah, given the money, exactly. I mean, my a priori was it should be so positive, yeah, uh, for, for the reasons we've explained. So when, uh, when I look at the news, the only thing I'm going to do here is to show you how many news are related to, say, trade. So I look at the image of the Belt and Road, all of this massive number of uh, articles that we extract. 
How many talk about trade? How many talk about investment? How many talk about something else, indebtedness, etc.? The most frequent topic is trade. And this goes in line with the idea that at the very beginning, at least in the, you know, in the mindset of probably everybody who was following the topic, this was a trade-related strategy because the infrastructure was meant to be trade-oriented, logistical um, uh, connectivity for trade. So it makes sense that trade is the most. Um, now, we ran a regression looking at all of those news, trade-related, investment-related, and others, to see which news explain better the tone, the image. And we find that trade is by far the, the, most, uh, the best explanation for every country's image, so either better or worse. And, the, and, and when you look at the news, it's basically something like we're too dependent on China's imports. Or, as you rightly point out before, um, uh, it's excessive dependence. The idea is that we can't have a balanced trade. This is basically the key message in overall. So I will move fast on something that is not on the paper, which is in, in itself um, I wonder why, but simply because I wasn't very sure about the results. So we will write something more with this. And it's really very quickly about the change in the image. So the whole idea is, OK, we know whether it's positive or negative, but is it changing rapidly since uh, January 2017? Mm. Very rapidly. Some countries very positively. The, the most obvious case is Egypt. But the most obvious case on the negative side, that might be, to be fair, behind the worsening of the image is the US. Yeah, you know, the US has massively changed its image from negative to very negative. And, and I think we can't forget this point, that there is, a, of course, a, a massive influence on how we see this uh, strategy because of that. Yeah? So I could now navigate very quickly as every country, I mean, country by country, why the image is deteriorating. Pakistan, I mean, after receiving 40 billion, of course, that dynamics. Um, and the idea also that uh, this is leading to uh, military conflict. So if you look at the worst point, it was a point where uh, Baloch militants attacked Chinese engineers. So you have the sense that countries realize that beyond the wonderful trade, uh, which I can't agree more, there is something else that may happen. And, and I don't mean to say uh, purposely. Sometimes maybe not purposely, but it still happens. There are geopolitical issues related to the fact that you build strategic infrastructure. That's the point. It's strategic. The weather sport is not only it's not only a trade-oriented port. It could be, but it could be perceived as something else. And I think that's where you see, and you see this all the time. A Panama wonderful view when Xi Jinping visits, then collapses. Maybe U.S. influence. You know, we don't really know. But but the point is. You can see for every single country a worsening of the image. In Russia, the, you know, the worst times are when basically there's no money. It says, Russia intended to suspend rail cooperation with China because of the delay and, and insufficient funding. So you know, there's also that aspect that people are waiting for the money, but sometimes the money doesn't come as expected. And that, of course, the expectations are too high. So I will be very fast. I'm rushing, rushing here, many more countries. I just want to add one point. So how is the global, the world responding? Not, not uh, individually, because I already showed you that the image is negative. 
governments are responding, Malaysia, Pakistan, Sri Lanka, you name it. But what I want to uh, focus on in one minute, and I'm sure Jean, uh, Jean-François may have more to say, is the kind of uh, cross-country or multilateral responses, and one being the most obvious one, the Indo-Pacific strategy. So this was, of course, a concept introduced by Japan with India, uh, Modi's visit to, um, Abe's visit to Modi. Key point here is being used by the US. It's now in the national strategy. It's very obvious. I was in Delhi recently. I was impressed, really, or shocked. I don't know what, which adjective to use. To see how important this has become for the US and for India, probably for Japan, but they, they don't want to show it as much. And also how ASEAN economies are wondering where are they going to fit, because they feel squeezed between the Belt and Road and the uh, Indo-Pacific strategy. So they only talk it's like a mantra, ASEAN neutrality, ASEAN neutrality. You know, please don't squeeze us, don't squeeze us. And, and this means this is important. And this also, of course, a military, um, not yet alliance, so thanks God we don't have yet a nation, US, Asia, NATO, but who knows what this will become with the quadrilateral uh, military dialogue. So you, you see that this is extremely strategic. Europe's response, and maybe rightly so, because this is not our role, is not of this nature. It's really about defining the, as, as I'm just copying the, you know, the announcement, what was said then um, when the EU-Asia connectivity plan was announced. And it's very telling, yeah? It's, it's a vision of connectivity in line with our values and our interests. Working with partners, so China is not excluded. It's very different. If, if, of course, China can't be part of the Indo-Pacific strategy. Japan supposedly has invited them, but I'm sure they've been told, you know, we stop here. This is, and, and, and I think this is very, very different, our response from the US-led response. So I leave it here. Um, I won't go into the, uh, into the um, basically the conclusions, because I've uh, finished my time. Thank you so much. Great. Um, thank, thank you so much, Alicia. I thought these were two very uh, sort of interesting and complementary um, uh, presentations. Um, and it was good to see um, sort of the image on the ground in the media mm. and how it has deteriorated, yeah. of course, in a number of, of, of significant partner countries. And to dig a little bit into what are the reasons why, yeah. why it has deteriorated. Um, so we now um, have... <coughs> Uh, George, George Cunningham from uh, the EEAS to, uh, to give his comments and remarks and uh, whatever else uh, you have on your mind. Thank you. Thank you. Well, also uh, thank you uh, to both of you and uh, also Alicia for introducing uh, my topic, uh, part of my topic at least, which is the Connecting Europe and Asia Building Blocks for an EU Strategy. It was a strategy uh, um, basically released uh, in the autumn of last year. Um, and uh, it's endorsed by the Council, and also it was presented at the Asia-Europe meeting that took place at heads of state level. And, of course, there there was a, a consensus concerning the work that has to be done on connectivity uh, between uh, Europe and Asia. Um, so, <clears throat> as was said, basically, um, I think there is an enormous, or there is an enormous infrastructure gap. It is calculated by the Asian Development Bank to be 1.3 trillion dollars a year actually required to 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 actually uh, stimulate growth uh, in Asia keep stimulating high growth and of course one of the uh, key aspects of the work the European Union is doing is that for our own economies and the sake of our own uh, citizens 
Um, we, we, you know, it is in our total interest to, to work on connectivity so that trade flows more and more between uh, Europe and this fast-growing region. So it's entirely in our interest to do so. Um, and uh, so we have um, created a, a framework of a plan, basically, which is um, very much dovetails with, uh, I think, what uh, our partners in the Indo-Pacific Indo sort of strategy area uh, are thinking as well, which is that it's based uh, on sustainability. Um, and uh, it's divided into four sort of types of connectivities. Uh, one is transport by air, sea, and land. And air is very important. Um, in particular, I'll mention to you that uh, EU ASEAN Aviation Agreement is almost um, ready to be initialed, and this will be a, a very enormous stimulus in terms of people-to-people uh, um, -people business contact between Asia and, and Europe. And this is just one of the things that's uh, at the moment almost finished in terms of negotiation, which will be a big boost in terms of um, I think in terms of uh, economic activity between uh, the two uh, large regions. Um, then, um, with, the, with concerning this transport connections, of course, we have this 10T, which is you know, how the European Union organizes its own transport networks. And of course, one of our objectives is to ensure that whatever comes in terms of corridors and so on actually connects with our system and respects our system as well. I'll come back to that in a minute, uh, in terms of our own networks within Europe and also what we're building uh, in, with candidate countries in, in the Western Balkans. Then the second aspect is regional energy platforms, especially electricity across uh, borders. And there we have a number of projects underway, for instance, with Afghanistan, where I've just uh, been actually uh, as deputy ambassador. And, uh, and particularly a focus on renewable energy. Um, which is something which is um, going to be a major factor in this. Then there's the digital, which is mainly uh, driven by private investment, regulatory framework and, uh, and business, and the competition will bring um, lower prices and uh, improved services. So digital is uh, important. Uh, and then uh, there's an aspect, of course, of promotion of, of human resources, interactive people-to-people uh, -people contact. Um, so, um, we are going to engage uh, with all the actors, including China, uh, with the philosophy that we have, and in particular to work closely with China to try and um, discuss with them, have a debate with them, a discussion with them about you know, how the, you know, our concepts work and, the, uh, and to see to what degree maybe things can be improved on the Chinese side, but we'll come back to that in a minute. Then um, part of, therefore, this is, of course, we're not going to do these things alone. We're going to create partnerships. Um, we're going to be working with ASEAN and with ASEM, and there'll be a, a special co connectivity coordinator, I think, appointed by ASEM. That was one of the outcomes of the ASEM meeting. Um, and we're going to particularly work with Central Asia and South Asia. Um, and uh, not just in terms of infrastructure, in terms of trade facilitation, for instance, all those slowdowns of trade coming through because of customs procedures going through so many different countries. There's a lot of work to be done on the regulatory regimes and to try and, and, and allow the trade to flow more freely. Um, important aspect as well is, you know, where is the funding going to come for, you know, the ambitions of the European Union outside the EU? Um, and in the new multilateral, uh, multi-financial, sorry, multi-multi-annual um, financial net um, framework, which is the uh, budget effectively of the European Union for 2021 to 2027, 20, uh, um, there is a provision actually which is in the draft because it's still in debate 
of the creation of a 60 billion euro uh, guarantee fund. And this addresses some of the issues concerning businesses and long-term interests and concerns about risk levels that um, the EU, as it's done with the Juncker plan within uh, the European Union and a little bit outside, um, is going to be sort of really ramped up. Um, and this is not for Asia just, but of course uh, worldwide. So Asia will be an aspect of it. And by the way, the other thing I should say is that there will be no more strategies on connectivity because we will simply be using the one for Asia to be effectively the principles for, for the world. Um, so uh, we, st we do have funding at, on stream at the moment. We have the EU Asia Investment Facility, which is 4.2 billion euro. Um, it's been used between 2010 and 2018. And uh, we also had a Western Balkans and Neighborhood Investment Facility, um, which has leveraged around 2.4 billion euro and uh, 2.8 billion euro, respectively. Um, so the uh, guarantee fund, of course, is, is a matter of leverage. So we reckon that um, between eight and 10 times of that 60 billion that is envisaged 2021 to 27 will actually be the funds that will be realized uh, for, for the projects. Um, and uh, similarly, uh, in our EU strategy of India, which has just been approved, and we're writing uh, a Central Asia strategy, uh, all this has been worked into these strategies in terms of the connectivity side. And in particular in Central Asia now, we're, uh, in the strategy that's currently being written, we're actually sort of writing much more detail now about how we will do connectivity. So we're now moving from the theory more into the practicalities of by region, um, what activities will actually occur. Now, turning to China, there has been since about the last four years an EU-China connectivity platform. So we have something like 80, incredibly, uh, European Union and China have about 80 dialogues uh, on the go in different areas. So uh, connectivity is one of them. Uh, and of course, there what we're trying to do is to, because the Chinese are, of course, with 16 plus one, which is the... Uh, 16 being the um, uh, uh, some of our members in uh, Central Europe uh, plus the Western Balkans. That's been sort of a little bit um, uh, has a has a dialogue with China on that, and therefore we're trying to say with China, don't just dialogue with them. We have to have a dialogue together because you have to fit what your plans are into what our plans are, so that connections occur properly. Um, and there have been problems with that in the past, but nonetheless, progress is being made. And uh, we have agreed to do a joint study of corridors uh, between China and uh, European Union. So we'll see how that goes, but in principle that's been agreed um, so that we can try and uh, work on that connection to make it you know, a proper connection uh, and not have um, projects which sort of go in different directions and not are, are not planned or not necessary or not within the, the planning of, that needs to be done. Um, so the other thing is... Uh, so I think uh, as you know, the positive side of BRI switching over now to the Chinese uh, aspect is, uh, of course, we've seen the ADB says just how much money is needed. So of course, any work that's being done, uh, which is to promote trade is I think a good thing. And so therefore we welcome that from China. But we need uh, to have on, on the other side, more transparency on what's going on with BRI. It has to be, as I mentioned before, environmentally responsible, has to take into account social costs, he needs to be mindful of fiscal responsibility and not add or create over-indebtedness. Um, but we can work with China to try and see how... And, and China is now adopting the terminology 
that has been stated in the, our strategy and also in um, other strategies, Indo-Pacific strategies, about sustainability. So you've seen now that China has started to talk about sustainability of its projects. But of course, the issue is between the rhetoric and the practice whether actually this will actually happen on the ground or whether it's just simply the adoption of, of, of terminology to make it seem to be uh, okay. Now, um, there's been quite a lot of media coverage on the uh, connectivity strategy of the European Union. And I'm pleased to say that uh, despite the government shutdown, um, there was a special delegation that came from the United States to uh, see us um, about cooperation between EU-US. Uh, uh, the US is actually not so far ahead of us because they themselves are gathering their funds to do their own projects. They're not there in terms of large size amounts of money quite there yet. So we are sort of reasonably on a par with, with our partner there, potential partner there. But the Japan is far ahead. Japan is uh, been working on it for years as well. We must not forget that they have lots of projects, lots of infrastructure projects underway. ASEAN itself has a connectivity plan for itself. So this is something we'll dovetail into, and that's already there in place as well. So things are happening, um, uh, but it would say that Japan is, is ahead of the game. And Japan has also come to see us. Uh, and we will be reciprocating those uh, missions that came to us, going to their countries to start discussions as to how we should be uh, playing it. Um, I don't want to overrun my time. I have some responses to what's been said. I don't know if we have time for that. Yeah. Just extremely fast. Yeah. Um, on the issue um, of, and I used to work for, I used to be the deputy head uh, for EU-China policy as well. Um, so I say this is very strategic, what China is doing in terms of BRI. Very strategic. It's, it's actually very... Um, it, I would say it's a, it's, it's a brilliant, um, strategic, geostrategically, what they're doing. Um, I think it's a, a great way uh, of extending its, uh, its power in the world. Um, and, uh, the, the, and also to put everything possible, it puts everything possible under Belt and Road Initiative. So any kind of infrastructure doing any kind of thing is called BRI. And that is why you have so many activities taking place around the world because it's not necessarily anything to do with, in my opinion, uh, connectivity. Uh, it's to do with simply, um, you know, having projects and, and funds. And these are loans, they're not grants, almost all. Um, and uh, there is, um, and there is um, a quid pro quo, of course, in many of these cases. Um, if a country cannot afford to repay China, then uh, the deal is done in terms of resources. So you'll see that China is uh, gathering in different parts of the world uh, different um, raw materials, for instance, or, or in, in some cases even uh, you know, um, having control of ports and so on in return for doing that infrastructure. So you know, an extraordinary plan, really, which is to you know, um, um, gather the resources it needs to grow um, and also um, you know, projection of power, effectively. To the degree that um, my understanding is that in Djibouti, for instance, 100% uh, of its DGP is indebted to China at the moment. And of course, it has uh, a very uh, important uh, military base now that's uh, in that port, or a, a port that they have, let's say, which is multi-use. Um, on the issue of um, environment, for instance, um, coal-fired plants in Pakistan, very expensive, very pollutant. But this is China's offer in terms of the environment to, to Pakistan, uh, instead of looking at renewables and ways of going forward in that respect. Uh, when it comes to 16 plus 1, something favorable, in my opinion, is the work done on Piraeus port. 
which I think is good and is a very much a belt, real Belt and Road initiative. You know, it's a way of, through maritime, getting goods into Europe and hopefully goods out of Europe to, to China. Why is Poland negative about BRI? Uh, my guess would be that there was a very famous project, motorway project, uh, done by China, China One. Uh, as you know, we have open procurement, so China can win projects within Europe. And so China did win a project, um, substantially undercut competition back in about uh, 2013 to build a motorway in Poland, and this failed um, because they just simply didn't get the costings right. And then they stopped, they were building the roads, and then they stopped actually paying Polish suppliers for local goods. And it was the case that in 2013, at the first 16 plus one meeting, which took place in Warsaw, uh, Li Keqiang, Prime Minister Li Keqiang, apologized, in fact, for the fact that China had got it wrong. But probably that lives in the memory of, of, of the Poles, uh, you know, until now, basically. And in fact, on a 16 plus one, little has been realized, actually, despite all the talk, despite everything. And one feels sometimes that this is, again, uh, some more geostrategic um, you know, engagement um, rather than something which is necessarily, at least within the European Union, giving results. There have been projects in the Western Balkans, indeed, of that 16 plus one, but within the European Union, little has happened. And we are happy that little has happened. Uh, we would be happy if, if things happened as, as long as it was, of course, um, along with, uh, you know, uh, favorable to the uh, TNT uh, principles that we have in terms of our own networks and our plans. Um, so um, the last thing I would say is uh, China makes an enormous amount of effort in terms of its um, projects, projection of soft power. It does go around a lot to say how good its projects are and therefore given the results of this excellent survey that you've done, it is a bit surprising to see that despite all that professional effort and really professional effort that they do to project themselves, it is the message is actually not getting through to the people. Thank you so much. Great. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, last but not least, uh, Jean-Francois, please. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, I, I'll try to be quick, and uh, being quick uh, very often uh, leads uh, to being uh, provocative. So I hope that's good. You would. That's good for uh, the conversation. You would. Uh, you would. You would accept that, and I will try to to to, to make my uh, response to the to the three speakers uh, as a, a good Frenchman in in, in three. Uh, main points. Uh, so uh, the, the first point will probably be a, a look back at uh, some historical facts. And the second uh, would be a look at some of the uh, loopholes or the, 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 the points which we should build on if we want to answer. And three, the third point would be a few, a few very humble uh, recommendations. Uh, and the, 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 the historical uh, look back uh, is, is the most provocative, I think. We uh, noticed that, of course, there is a lack of infrastructure in the world, that uh, there is complementarity between the Chinese project and this lack of infrastructure. But if I look back at history, most cases where a huge plan like this uh, was launched uh, was after a period of war and a period of destruction. So that is the first point where uh, China is uh, putting the West or the other countries at the puzzle. And this is why we do not understand exactly what's happening. Uh, it never happened, or it very, very scarcely happened, that, uh, you know, apart from the Marshall Plan, which came after the war, or apart from the EU building, which was also coming after the war, 
or other plans, something as big happened uh, without a war. And of course, this uh, brings us back to the usual uh, Chinese strategy, which is winning a battle without fighting a war. Um, and that's, I think, is the element of the puzzle. The other historical uh, reflection I like to make, but this is almost a joke, um, the puzzle is very much like the puzzle that the Trojans had when they watched this horse coming into their city. And they wanted to worship this horse, and they started to worship it, but they didn't know what was in it. And that was a Trojan horse. I'm not saying that the Belt and Road Initiative is a Trojan horse, but I'm just saying that we are as puzzled as the Trojan were. And I'm not saying that the Greek will win again, because history doesn't repeat itself. And history doesn't repeat itself to the point that, as of today, China is 18% of the world's GDP. Uh, the last time two countries reached, as the FT was saying two days ago, 18% of GDP was Russia in the late 80s and Japan in the early 90s. 18% in 2018 seems to be a turning point. I'm not saying again that China is at a turning point, but we have to watch that. China is telling us that it will, of course, succeed, but China is also at the tipping point where it might overreach itself. Those are my historical uh, lookbacks. Now, uh, looking at uh, what can be weaknesses or loopholes or issues, um, obvious ones, and instead of looking at the quick wins, which we might all do, I would like to look at the long wins, but really solid wins that we should build on uh, with China. I think uh, as Europeans and as Westerners, we like multilateralism. For the moment, BRI looks like multilateralism, but it's only bilateralism. Every MOU, every deal that China builds on in the BRI scheme is a bilateral. Do we like this? Can we build a world order on bilateralism? I don't think so, and even the Chinese say no. So we definitely have to bring this BRI into a multilateralist approach. Also, what we have built on as Westerners is, I would not say legal frame, because we cannot impose legal frame, but at least know what the standards and what the uh, 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 cases for uh, litigations or problems may arise. So far, whichever project goes into BRI is blurred in terms of jurisdiction and very often has not defined yet the arbitration environment, except the Chinese one. China has built an arbitration court in Beijing, but I'm not sure that all the Westerners are ready to go into the city, uh, the, the city IAC, as, it, as it's called. So I think we really uh, need to um, build on those weaknesses and sort them out. It will take a long time, and this is why we cannot have a quick win. This is what we have to tell China. We will have a Belt and Road Summit again in China in, uh, in late May, April, early May, and I think this is the message that all the Europeans going there should bring. When we had the first summit, 
We had panels, but no panel like this one. You always had one member of the future BRI speaking alone. We had Putin, we had Erdogan, we also had Christine Lagarde at the last moment because she's not a, a nation, she's a multilateral, multilateral institution, but we need to have panels for the plenary sessions. I think this is very important so that a dialogue uh, happens. And this is the beginning, of course, of my recommendations. The uh, recommendation that we may have, if we turn back from long wins to quick wins, possibly to adopt the attitude which is pointed out by the study by Alicia, which is Netherlands. Netherlands is very positive about Belt and Road. Why are they? Because they bring it down to something very pragmatic. They say, after all, we are Dutch. The Chinese are Chinese. I'm sorry if there are Dutch people in the room. I like Dutch people, and they are the best in doing business. But uh, at the end of the day, it's not about you know uh, ambitions. Uh, it's just about doing business. Now, if we if we if we if we tell Chinese, okay, let's keep it so, everyone will have a very positive view on on Belt and Road. But then, let's not go beyond that, and let's don't carried away uh, by that, because possibly uh, tomorrow China would have stretched itself uh, too far with the Belt and Road Initiative. I don't think that's the right approach, because I do believe that behind this approach there is a huge ambition by China. I know there are complementarities. We know that Belt and Road Initiative already works, because we have examples of uh, train traffics and ships and all type of trades which were boosted uh, since the last uh, five years. But what I'm saying is that we don't have to take it for granted that it will succeed the way it is, and we may have leverage on it. We just have to point out which type of leverage we should use. This is it. Great. Um, thank you very much. This was, um, I thought, uh, I thought a very sort of uh, refreshing uh, view on the on the issue um, from a much more geopolitical uh, approach. And and I think, I guess one of the sort of the key tensions that we need to discuss or need to reflect on is sort of the tension between, on the one hand, the what you call the pragmatic Dutch trading nation approach. Um, and uh, and um, what you then call the Trojan horse or the unknown, um, our, our bewilderment and puzzlement about um, the geostrategic ge dimension of the whole project, right? And, and, and that's certainly uh, sort of at the core of also the differences between, you know, the more positive assessments that we see and the more negative assessments that we see um, are really driven, driven by that. So, so, so look, I, I, I think we have until until 10.30. My proposal would be that um, uh, if there is already one or two questions in the audience, uh, I can take uh, take them, and then we get a chance for everybody to respond to the audience, but also to uh, among among each other. And so I see, uh, um, uh, yeah, we start here, please. And if you could identify yourself when you when you uh, give us give a, give your remarks, can we have the microphone, please? Um, one microphone here in front, please. And then, uh, and then there's one uh, one gentleman in the back, Mr. Puss, here in the, in the front, please. Please. Thank you. Um, 
I was 20 years global head of trade for Philips, which is a small Dutch company, which is also a big fan of international trade. So uh, I appreciate your comments about it. Um, I have a question about connectivity, and I'm looking at, at George, and specifically digital connectivity. And I see some dilemmas for European decision makers. Um, connectivity digital requires digital 5G infrastructure to be put in place. I see Americans that some American companies sometimes have backdoors in their own software, and there have been cases in the last two years involving large American companies. Yet the America is putting its approach to China is to be much more muscular, uh, much more aggressive towards China. Now, if Europe wants to be ahead in the deployment of 5G, there needs to be a competitive market. But America is putting a lot of pressure, I know, on member states to take a harder line on Chinese companies. And I think Europe has a difficulty. They may have to decide between supporting America's hard line and European interests in developing its 5G and connectivity and its good relations with China. So I'm wondering whether you see that <coughs> as a dilemma and how you see that unfolding. Thank you. Uh, can we take the microphone here to the back? Thank you. Uh, my name is Edouard Priest. I'm Dutch, Mr. De Melio. Um, I had the pleasure. I had the pleasure to meet Mr. Dadush in the elevator when he came in, and I have a question for him. Uh, thank you for the objectivity with which you described the Belt and Road thing. I admire that. You said, if I understood well that China provides the cash, but it's not a gift, not a grant. It's always money lent, which is lent to the countries where the, the work is being done. And those countries then have a debt. And um, although you have been very careful not to give political opinion about what you said, um, my question to you is, would you agree that the system which China uses in that sense, they put these countries into debt in projects where due diligence, as you said, is not, not clear. We don't know if whatever is happening there will bring its money back. In other words, the debt that these countries take on is a danger for them. And very often, like in Sri Lanka, they cannot pay back. And then China has an enormous power over these countries, which is a way which Mr. Cunningham said quite clearly is for them to increase their power in every place where they do this. My question to you is, would you at least agree, Mr. Dadush, even if you do not yourself wish to give an opinion, that we, the Europeans, should try and formulate an opinion whether we think these policies are correct and are right, and whether we subscribe and not just stay there dithyrambically praising China, but is this not actually, in my eyes, it is morally wrong what they do. It is actually a bit dirty. And I, I again, I know you will not wish to give a political answer, but would you at least answer me, shouldn't we collectively try and make an opinion about it? Thank you. Th thank you. There is the gentleman all the way there in the back. Um. 
Perhaps we take, uh, I take one more, then, then we will... Thank you, Mr. Wolf. Good morning, citizens. My name is Angelos Karlaftis, Epochos Advisors, who represent the ECOWAVES movement, a pan-European and Mediterranean movement, which is based in direct democracy, in science and in ecology. Mr. Cunningham's uh, pro uh, proposal and presentation, it is moving to the proper directions. Of course, it's more diplomatic. Uh, but uh, this belt, I think, is not for the benefit of Europe. As our allies the, the, in USA, they, they took us to this adventure in China, in investing over there, and, distra and, and our industry moved there, and so Europe doesn't have a good industry right now as it should have. Uh, the same thing is happening from all these presentations by the Chinese, which are very wise people, but they have different culture from ours and different political systems. And this has to do a lot, uh, according to our opinion, with the globalized system, which has failed. Globalization has failed. The debts are increased. There are trillions of euros. So what they do uh, with their aggressive policies is we don't take into consideration the defense issue. Uh, I spoke about the could, defense, could you, the, the creation. Could you ask the question, please? Yes, yeah. the creation Thank of you. the European Army. Uh, I spoke uh, the last two days in the Parliament. Uh, is a need for Europe, of course, not without the United Kingdom because the United Kingdom is a very important uh, factor in Europe and cannot be out of Europe, maybe through the European defense community, as we propose. So, so please, what is so your question? The question is also, uh, uh, Russia shouldn't be analyzed better in all these geopolitical things, and especially to the belt, because Mr. Putin has the political view for Euro-ASEAN, which with the Europeans, at the past, we okay. have faced a lot of historical problems from the Eastern Chinese inventions to Europe. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. So the role of Russia is one important aspect. So we have a one more uh, question, um, perhaps here, Haggai said, in, in, the, in the front. And then, uh, and then uh, each of you will get a chance to react and comment. Kurt Geisert, Backbone Consulting in Germany. Why is the mood in the Netherlands very positive? The land connection goes uh, via the inland port uh, in uh, Germany, Duisburg to Rotterdam, uh, which does not mean, uh, if I mention Duisburg, that the whole of Germany is enthusiastic about it. But are we in the risk that single states see their positive effect rather than the whole picture, and that there is a DVD et impera uh, mood in China? Okay, thank you very much. Uh, is there a risk of divide and rule? Um, so, so look, I, th I think, Uri, I give you the floor first, and then uh, uh, then uh, Alicia, George, and, and Jean-Francois, we, we stay in the same order. So, uh, react to co-panelists. I mean, you have a chance to react to co-panelists now, if you want to. Uh, okay, well, there's not much I disagree with. Uh, what has been said by my co-panelists. Um, I will uh, address the question that was directly addressed yes. to me, which is, uh, is it morally wrong uh, for China to lend us money for infrastructure projects uh, in developing countries? And, and my answer is, it's not morally wrong. Uh, I look at it as a development economist it can be economically wrong in specific circumstances. And we need to understand when that happens and, and be uh, and caution about that. Um, 
there is an analysis which is simply reported in my paper, in our paper, uh, which uh, has been done by the Center for Global Development that identified essentially eight countries uh, that already have high debt levels and where there are very large Chinese projects that could take them over some kind of benchmark of, of sustainability. And th those are examples uh, that uh, uh, I think need to be looked at very carefully and something has to, done about, uh, has to be done about it. I am sure that while there are eight countries where this is happening, there are a lot of other situations where uh, uh, some of these projects are valuable, will generate good results, and are sustainable. So we have to look at the specifics uh, rather than take a moral uh, point of view. The, uh, uh, I don't think there's anything morally wrong with lending money for infrastructure, and I just want to underline the fact that we've been lending money for infrastructure for the last 50, 60 years. I worked many years at the, at the World Bank. Uh, um, so that's been happening. The, the other point I want to make to caution about taking too strong a view on the debt creation is that this is not the first time that the world has seen excessive debt uh, buildup, okay? I mean, I could mention, they're mentioned in the paper, a number of instances where there's been excessive debt buildup which had nothing to do with China, had to do with banks, had to do with the uh, creation of the euro and uh, uh, what it led to in, you know, in terms of very high debts uh, being, uh, being created within Europe which were unsustainable. The best example is actually the uh, highly indebted countries uh, uh, situation, the low income, uh, highly indebted countries, which eventually built up very high debts, that these were official debts generated by the governments represented in this, in this room and by the World Bank where I worked, and which eventually had to be forgiven under the Paris, uh, Paris Club conditions. Uh, so this is not the first time. We've all made those mistakes. The Chinese are at high risk of making more of these mistakes at the moment because their due diligence is insufficient. But that doesn't mean that the, uh, that the motive is wrong. Exactly there, and um, I'm not sure I will answer all of the questions, but I think it's interesting to indeed follow up on this very important example of hippie countries and what happened to them, uh, the debt being uh, donated, basically, or condonated, and a couple of differences um, to, to follow on that case. First of all, that was a multilateral endeavor under the Paris Club. China is not a member of Paris Club, and it's indeed the largest lender for many of these countries today. So there's no paripasso, there's no multilateralization of the discussion. Uh, even worse, China is actually an observer of the Paris Club, so if anything, it knows what the others may be wanting to do without necessarily committing to that decision. So I think that is very, and this brings me to the idea of a hub and spoke uh, approach. So for a project like this, of this dimension, and comparing it with other mistakes we've done in the past, for me the key uh, stumbling block here is that this is really a China strategy. So you, 
arguably the mistakes may be paid, you know, by China, which is unfortunate, especially if, if in line with what you said, this was with the best intentions and nobody argues against that, probably yes. But this is not the point, is that if it goes wrong, this will be a massive sudden stop in cross-border right. lending to the world. So China will basically, uh, either because there's a problem in China or because it simply realizes, say, after Venezuela, that this was not a great idea. So that in itself will be a problem. And in, on top of that, there will be no multilateral endeavor to minimize the consequences of that because China not being part of that uh, multilateral, uh, at least the existing institutions we have. AIB has lent only 12 plus billion. That's nothing compared to the 400 billion estimated lent by policy banks in China. So in other words, it's, it, this is my concern that independently on the, I'm not going to argue here about values, whether this is right or not. I'm just saying, if it goes right, even more China should report to the BIS. At least we know how much they're lending, where they're lending, which sectors, I mean, yeah? Transparency. Transparency. Yeah. If it goes wrong, China is not in the Paris Club. I mean, it's like, you, I feel that this is the problem. And again, maybe because, I'm not saying it's all China's fault, maybe we were not accommodating enough. It doesn't really matter at this point because we are now stuck there with massive amounts of lending. I, I think this is the point. Okay, let me, let me turn to, to George, but uh, George, there was one question directly directed to you, but let me, let me uh, uh, add, add one, um, oh. and I'm sorry for, the, for, that, for that, because you mentioned um, the issue of the Pireo sport, and, yeah. and that, it's, that's, that it's a positive, and you know, I think looking at this as a sort of, as an economist, um, I uh, cannot, cannot agree more, right? I mean, uh, Greece, uh, highly indebted, um, with very little debt forgiveness from the European partners, as we all know, uh, is trapped economically and is in a very, very difficult situation economically. And so here comes China and puts in money and, uh, and builds, uh, builds an infrastructure port that's good for the, for the Greek economy and is frankly something where I wonder why the European Union hasn't been able to, to mobilize um, these kind of resources to, to help, help the, uh, the Greek economy grow more, more, more prosperous. Um, but it, it does pose an issue, in, and you are in the external action service, it does pose issues on the foreign policy side. I mean, uh, there have been instances where the EU has found it difficult to come to unanimity decisions um, on China, um, also because uh, Greece, Greece took different positions, and there may have been a link between the Chinese investment in the period board and that decision. So, so I just wondered whether, whether you wanted to comment on that also. I suppose, of course, I can't comment on that. But um, it is true that uh, Greece and Hungary have um, have uh, are, uh, have have been taking uh, different positions from time to time for whatever reasons. But these are the the two countries in certain instances where this has happened. Um, yes, Piraeus. Um, um, I haven't really followed Piraeus for the last three years because I've been in Afghanistan. But I do recall that uh, it was a it was a, a very positive thing. Uh, it was interesting. Um, I was informed, I have been to Paris Port and, and talked to people that uh, the, the, what the Chinese did is they put in management and the actual workers are Greeks. And um, one has the sort of fear that, you know, somehow, you know, people are being overworked, these sort of Chinese rules rather than EU rules. No, they obey the EU rules well, at least they did three years ago, I presume it's the same thing. 
Um, and so, and, and the port, port's productivity increased enormously, purely because um, the Chinese managed the thing in a way in which people came on time, they worked their period of time, they left. You know, the whole thing was run in a very streamlined way, a Chinese way, let's say. Uh, and it just shows you, actually, that this is a very good example. I hope it still exists the same way of, of how things can work well. Um, yes, uh, on the issue of digital, well, it's a tricky one, isn't it? But uh, I would say simply, and I have to say this, I think the US is an ally, despite the fact that there are ups and downs, and serious downs now. And uh, if uh, backdoors, if you're going to have backdoors from, from one or t'other, then uh, we're going to, I think there's uh, more security uh, for us um, being um, more reliant on, on the United States in this case. I will say this person, I should say this a personal point of view. Um, Huawei um, has been involved in quite a number of countries, including the United Kingdom. Uh, in fact, it had a very curious um, role to play with British Telecom and with uh, GCHQ. Um, in terms of uh, checking uh, on software, which I could never understand. Um, but it is uh, certainly a number of countries. Huawei, for instance, is in Greece as well, and I'm sure in quite a number of countries. Um, and therefore, it's, um, I think different countries are taking a, a bit different view on, on Huawei. And of course, Huawei is to do with 5G, and of course, when it comes to sale of uh, iPhones, or um, then, of course, it's, um, it's a free market and they compete along with everybody else and, in fact, are out-competing out um, um, the US companies in that respect. So, no easy answer to that, except that we should have our own uh, 5G uh, champions uh, and do it ourselves. Of course, that would be the ideal thing. Now, on the issue of debt, you know, which is a very big thing, yes, I mean, the EU is insisting in its discussions with uh, China on when we do the connectivity platform on the issue of transparency. Um, but again, I mentioned it before, you know, if they can't pay back the debts, these countries, um, China has demanded collateral, right? Or has demanded resources, access to uh, raw materials, you know, which it needs to feed its industries. Or I think, I don't know, but presumably agricultural land, things like that. And so they have a, a foothold, which is important for their own economy that's built in, and also in some cases, um, you know, usage of ports, basically. So, in a sense, it's sort of getting its money back in a different kind of way. Um, but I just wanted to say that, and, and in fact, it's, you know, it is a very geostrategic uh, approach. Um, on the AIIB, you may recall that was created by China as a, as a kind of development bank, and, and it was really seen as um, in competition with ADB. Um, it was interesting, the US didn't want to join, Japan refused to join, but most of Europe joined, or many European Union countries joined, those that are involved financially in these matters. And it's been very healthy to do that, because in fact, because of the fact that there have been a lot of uh, Europeans involved in that bank, that that bank has become more kind of model as, as we know it, as the West knows it. Um, and I think that that is a good sign of it. It's a good example of a positive engagement with China, which seems to have worked. Um, and maybe we continue down that line, of course, to see how much other things happen. You know, the, the funny thing is, and all this I find personally, is that you know, China could benefit so much more by um, getting involved with the world system. Um, instead, it's uh, going down its own track in many aspects. And I think at the end of the day, um, they could be leveraging much more money um, by uh, far greater cooperation. Thank you.
thank you. And our last speaker is Jean-François de Melio, um, and I think you will focus on many questions, but divide and no, rule, uh, yeah, divide no, no, and yeah, yeah, is I, for I, the political I, scientist. I, 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 I think the divide and rule question is an ongoing question, and uh, I try to have a very specific answer to that. If we say divide and rule, we, we, we interpret the Chinese attitude as a deliberate and hostile approach uh, to its uh, supposed partners. I think it's exactly the opposite. And what I'm trying to do whenever I look at uh, things Chinese is to borrow as much as I can uh, the frame of mind of my Chinese uh, interlocutors. And basically, the reason why they behave like this is they just go by what is the easiest. You know, it's just, I like to take this comparison uh, coming, for example, from uh, the Dao De Ting, where the butcher cuts the meat wherever you have hollow. And this is how you cut, you don't divide. So wherever we are weak, of course, China goes. But that does not mean that there is an intention. It's just a way to do things the easiest possible manner. That's it. Okay, I, I think we could go on for forever, but uh, but I think we covered quite a quite a range of issues. Um, let me let me thank um, all of you for um, well. I, I I cannot take any more questions because then I, I will go back to perhaps you can ask a question bilaterally afterwards um, because other. Oh yes, please please then uh, please uh, uh, can we have the microphone um, that uh, that the Chinese. Um, uh, oh, no, you need to, uh, otherwise, need a microphone. otherwise people don't hear. So, sorry, uh, please, yes. I'm sorry to, to take the floor at this stage, but no, no, uh, I think there's please, a need thank you. Uh, for our Chinese to, to speak or put some of the reports right. Um, <laughs> we are actually in an official holiday, so I'm not supposed to, <laughs> supposed to, to work, but uh, yeah, anyway. Uh, uh, because a lot of people talked about that trap uh, diplomacy. Um, I think the Chinese leader has responded several times, and I just quote one example, that is the Sri Lanka port, and according to the annual report of uh, the Sri Lanka Central, um, it's the central Bank, that China's debt is only, uh, account only for 10%. And if you look at the, uh, the mix-up, ADB 14%, Japan 12%, World Bank, 11. And then, as Mr. Wuru said, the other 40, 39 is the government's debt. So China is not a big shareholder in this exercise. And also, don't forget that China has very good deals with de developing countries. We have that uh, China-Africa summit. On each and every summit, the president announced exemption of a number of debts from many developing countries. And that's something that EU and other Western allies don't normally do. I want to put that on the record. And also, there was uh, this lengthy discussion on debt trap diplomacy. There was an interview by FT to our executive vice minister of foreign affairs. But unfortunately, FT did not publish in full. It's only a very selected part of it. 
So if you are interested, he gave a very detailed answer regarding this debt trap diplomacy. If, if you're interested, you can give me your business card afterwards. I can send you the, the full transcript. And also, I need to, if, if I may, sir, uh, seek a clarification because I read the report by Alicia. Um, there are a number of uh, um, media sources. My, f my previous posting was in Southeast Asia and also in South Pacific. And I read the newspapers every day, naturally, as a diplomat. But my understanding is that their news resources, especially on international coverage, are very much dependent on the Western media, like the Reuters, the AFP, or the AP. So when you look at the samples, when you look at the BR, B, BRI, I really wonder where are the news sources? Are they the real voices of the people on the grounds, or are they just you know, the pieces of news from AP, AFP, or you know, AP? And also, another one, if I may, is that I look at your Annex, Annex 11. It's very interesting. You mentioned uh, some of the negative response, especially in South Africa and also in Vanuatu. In South Africa, the opinions is from a German foundation. Stephen, I couldn't spell the name properly, but it is a credible organization. I respect the fact, but are they in a good position to represent the voice of South African people? Another point is Vanuatu, that's more interesting. Mm. This is the gentleman with the name of uh, Michael Showbridge, and he was with the Defense Intelligence Organization of Australia. I don't really know whether he can properly reflect the voices of the Vanuatu people on BRI. I will stop there. Thank you very much. Thank you. I think I, I need to respond. Okay. Just on uh, yeah, sure. I mean, the, we don't do the, the, date, the big data analysis the way you are looking for the news. Meaning, it's not that I Google and I find who was negative in Vanuatu and I find the Marshall Stiftung or who knows what. No. We actually use millions. This is big data, millions of data points. We actually also include Xinhua for that matter. This is all local news in local languages and also uh, English languages. So I can actually send you, which is not in the paper, and I think you have a point, let me, but I just want to first clarify that that's not the way we do it. We, we look at you know who said something negative about the Balonor di Vanuatu, but because that would be literally manipulating the, the information. What we do is we take all of the news in local languages of every single country in the world. So I can't take that as you know as I'm just uh, clarifying that this is the way it works. There may be Reuters news. Those Reuters news may be translated into, into the local language. That's why I'm saying you may have a point, which I tried to make. Of course, there is a lot of US influence in all of our news. By the way, you're doing your great strides in influencing news as well as through Xinhua. So this is not only the US. But I would agree with you that the, the, the degree of influence is not yet compar comparable, because the US has been doing this for decades. So I, I take your point and I tried to actually make it myself at the beginning. But we could actually also exclude, say, Sri Lanka, US, uh, not US, English language news. We could do that and look at the difference between local 
language news and English language news to see the difference and send that to you. But the point is that we're not looking at one specific news. This is, uh, it's this big, is, data. This is it's big, big data. data. So I'm sorry, it's not about the uh, German foundation. No, no, this is the whole average of all news for each country, I'm just saying. Great. Um, thank you. Thank you to all of you for your comments, your remarks, and your questions. I think we had a very fruitful and differentiated debate, really, on this whole initiative. Uh, I think more will follow. Thank you.